show. But first, we talk about the more serious news here at home with British Columbia's COVID-19 surge continuing to shatter records once again yesterday. Another highest ever case count. Let's have a listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. We have 1,293 new cases of COVID-19 diagnosed today, bringing the total number of people with COVID-19 in British Columbia to 108,278. Okay, almost 1,300 new cases yesterday. Another new daily record. Of course, the variants of COVID more uh, concerning as they continue to circulate in British Columbia as well. All right, what should we do about this now? Is British Columbia's response adequate to this crisis at the moment? Let's discuss now with my guest, Sonia know She is the leader of the BC Green Party, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Sonia, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, let's talk about your call yesterday for a lockdown in, in British Columbia. Tell me what you think the government should be doing here. Yeah, first of all, I mean, we, we put a, a number of suggestions in front of government saying, here's a list of things you actually have the ability to do. Could you please start showing some leadership? But I look back to a year ago, and we can recognize that we had a common purpose, a common goal. We were going to bend the curve. We were going to keep numbers down. We were going to keep British Columbians safe. We were going to keep the healthcare system from uh, getting overwhelmed. And right now... I ask anyone to tell me from this government and the communications that we're getting, what is our common goal? Uh, We are seeing these variants and these case numbers rise at pretty alarming rates. Uh, And so far until yesterday, and there was the announcement about closing down workplaces with more than three cases, but very little has been done. Okay, let's talk about some of the measures you would like to see implemented here. travel, Travel restrictions, how would that work? Well, you can see in other jurisdictions, and even a year ago in Tofino, if people were going to Tofino, they were asked if their travel there was essential. I mean, you could have it as simple as if you're going to get on the ferry, you can expect to be asked, is this essential travel? Uh, We also need, you know, I think more explicit communications from government on this and more transparency. But the, the, the fact is, you know, I, I, worry and i think a lot of people are worried and we we are seeing this and hearing this from people um that we're being very complacent at a moment when um for example carolyn colian from simon fraser university who modeled exactly what's happening right now back in january and said the variants are coming we should get in front of this we didn't and now she's saying if we just leave things as they are we could have up to three thousand cases a day by the end of april Okay, so if you brought in a non-essential travel ban, then you'd obviously have to have some enforcement, right? Like you had Horgan earlier this week was asked again about a travel ban, and again he appeared to kind of rule it out, saying, "Well, how would you enforce that? What are we supposed to do? You know, we're gonna what well, are we gonna do? Could, like, how are you gonna enforce he it?" Call, he could call up the premiers of Manitoba and the Maritimes and ask how they've done it because they have absolutely been able to have travel bans in uh, the Maritimes and 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 Manitoba, both areas which have seen their numbers stay low. In fact, yeah. while most of the country is announcing you know, further measures, uh, out in the Maritimes, they're opening things up because they've succeeded at keeping their numbers down. All right. So, okay. So we'd set up like what checkpoints? So you'd, you'd stop people in their cars or if they're getting on a ferry and saying, where are you going? 
And if they're if it's not essential, you, turn, you tell them to turn around, go home. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, being really clear about what we expect as what is and is not essential travel, and yeah. uh, you know, ma- taking measures. A year ago, we all stayed home for several weeks on end, all of us. Right? We 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 had that common purpose, uh, and we had a tenth of the number of cases that we have right now. So. Uh, you know, again, what we're putting on the table here, all of these suggestions we're putting in front of government is to say, uh, we think that we need you to step up, show the leadership that British Columbians want to see right now, and identify how you're going to navigate through this, uh, these growing numbers. It's not, it's not okay to put the burden on individuals to say, well, it's all up to you, because it's not, you know, this is a global pandemic. Uh, and we need the government to step in okay. and take measures. Okay, just just one more time, though, on the enforcement, because I think mm-hmm. this is one of the key points. So on BC Ferries, for example, so you would you would anticipate that BC Ferries staff would be questioning people as they get on a ferry and asking them where they're going and what they're doing. Sure. Right? When you Yeah, if you pull up to the ferry terminal, uh, yeah. you could be expected to be asked, is this essential travel? Right, and if it's not, you turn, you're not allowed to go on. Yeah, you should right. not be doing it. Okay, what about shutting down schools? You want schools shut down? I think if we looked at a, a targeted uh, period to get the, put the schools online and get all of the teachers vaccinated, right? this is what teachers yeah. have been asking for uh, for a long time, uh, and ensure that we're not seeing you know these, these variants take off. The, the concern with the variants, and I, I'm sure you looked at the numbers, Mike, but the, yeah. the positivity rate... Uh, is really high across the board in BC, significantly higher. In fact, per capita, we have higher rates in Ontario right now. Right. So if you shut down the schools, and Bonnie Henry's been asked about this on al- almost a daily basis, why not shut mm-hmm. down the schools? And her answer is is consistent that they're not seeing COVID spread in the schools. I mean, they are seeing individual clusters and cases in schools, but she says that's basically cases that are caught in the community and then someone goes to school and they're positive and then they stay home. They're not seeing widespread uh, widespread spread of the virus in school settings. So therefore, she keeps the schools open. But you, mm-hmm. dis- you disagree with her, right? Well, what I've asked in the past, and, and I think is really important, is, okay, be really transparent with the, da- the data. Show us the data, but also show us the the research and the evidence that you're using, because we know in other jurisdictions, the UK, Denmark, for example, when the variants hit there, they closed everything down. They now have positivity rates hovering at 1%. We're at about 10%. So tell us why the measures being taken in other jurisdictions based on the evidence that they have are not applying here. Explain what is informing your your decision making and yeah. your 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 position on this. This is important. This is transparency. This is how you build trust and again how you get right. back to a common purpose and a common goal. What would you say to a parent who would be worried about their kid's school being shut down? I've taken some heartbreaking calls on the open line in this topic, including yesterday from a mom who said that her son went was went through a lot of mental health difficulties mm-hmm. and challenges when the schools were shut down, and he's doing better when the schools are open. There's a lot of parents who don't have the ability. They'd have to scramble for child care if, if the schools were shut. What do you say to those parents? Yeah, I understand, and my kids yeah. as well. I, I know it's better for them to be in school. I, I also think that we have to look at the implications of 
um, you know, long COVID on, on young people and on teachers. And we have to consider how can we quickly get this under control so that yeah. we're not in this month after month after month of these rising cases. Okay. You also want to temporarily close non-essential businesses. What's the definition of that? What's a non-essential business that would be shut down? Well, just like we did a year ago, Mike. So anything that, you know, isn't groceries or pharmacies, but also supporting businesses, supporting workers through a short period so that the race between the vaccines and the variants, we give the vaccines a chance to win this race. Okay. So if you're not a, a, a food store or a pharmacy, your business would be closed. Correct. Yeah. So this is a, these are recommend, these are ideas and suggestions we're putting on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but we are also uh, saying that this would have to come with support. We recognize just how hard this has been. Okay. You've got everybody talking today, certainly, about these ideas. I appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about the power of Amazon now. The online retail giant continues to grow and become more powerful, racking up record profits. Amazon owner Jeff Bezos, still the richest human being on the planet. He is now worth $177 billion. The pandemic did not matter. His personal wealth has grown another $67 billion over the last year. The pandemic has been good for business at Amazon. Their stock prices soared. Amazon shares up 76% last year. But is Amazon too big? Is it too powerful? Is the dominance of Amazon unfair to smaller local retailers? Let's discuss now with my guest, Ron Knox. He's a senior researcher and writer at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Their mandate, they oppose excessive corporate control. They want to empower thriving local businesses. Ron, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Okay, I find Amazon fascinating. Uh, I do occasionally shop at Amazon. I find the prices and the service are good. I guess a lot of people would feel that way about them. But uh, what do you think about it? Like they're too big, they're too powerful, they should be broken up. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think all of those things, right? Uh, I yeah. think uh, I think most people at this point realize that Amazon has um, excessive power. Uh, it has monopoly power in the market. Look, it controls uh, two thirds of uh, of basically all online retail, especially for certain product categories, things like books and home appliances and you know kitchen goods uh, and things like that. Uh, one out of every two product searches begin on Amazon. It, it doesn't begin on a search engine like Google or anywhere else. And Amazon has used this power that it has over online retail to grow its monopoly in other adjacent industries, right? Including right. shipping and storage of goods. Um, Amazon Web Service is the largest cloud computing company in the world. Um, and, uh, and so it spreads its tentacles all over the economy and yeah. you end up with this kind of massive ungovernable corporation and uh, we think that's bad for small local businesses. We think it's bad for workers. We think it's bad for shoppers. And um, lots of solutions, but certainly breakup is one of those. Okay. I know in the United States, you've got antitrust laws there and monopolies, like you mentioned, uh, can, there can be government control over them and regulation. And it's interesting to see, like, you've got a, a new coalition of small business groups this week in, in the United States 
launching a campaign to for tougher antitrust enforcement here to maybe break up Amazon. Do you think, and they include like the American Booksellers Association, for example, as you just mentioned, bookselling. Like, do they got a, uh, any hope here? I mean, you've got a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress now. Right? Do they show any willingness to break up Amazon? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, look, you're, you know, you're seeing it's not just it's not just the Democrats, although um, there has been some really tremendous leadership on this issue by um, some Democrats, uh, both in the uh, in the House and in the Senate. But you're seeing this is really uh, this emerging, um, you know, bipartisan issue that uh, is popular with people everywhere because everybody likes their local small businesses. They want them to exist. They want them to survive. Um, you know, everyone's a worker and they understand uh, the, you know, really detrimental treatment that Amazon workers face. Um, so this is, uh, you know, it's a growing movement on both sides uh, yeah. of the aisle. So, uh, so just, you know, over the summer, real quickly, over the summer, there was, um, uh, uh, you know, a massive investigation done by the House Judiciary Committee looking at the uh, the monopoly power of multiple tech platforms, including Amazon. That report came out in October, and what that report showed um, was that Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple have all in various ways used their power to uh, abuse the system, abuse rivals, abuse their suppliers, workers, and customers. And um, yeah. uh, as part of their recommendations for how to fix it, you have to break them up, you have to regulate them, and, uh, and we think we have a lot of momentum. Okay, well, that would certainly be music to the ears of uh, some regulators and politicians who would like to agree with you and want to break up uh, Amazon, including uh, Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders. Let me play a clip here for you, Ron, of Bernie Sanders here talking about Amazon. Here he is. This is an issue that has got to be looked at. Uh, what we are seeing all over this country is the decline in retail. Uh, we're seeing this incredibly large company getting involved in almost every area of commerce. And I think it is important uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. Okay, so it's not just America, of course, too. Of course, here in Canada, Amazon is also very popular and powerful. But let me ask you this, Ron, like for people who are listening right now, and a lot of them are probably Amazon shoppers who use Amazon frequently or regularly. And I'm sure for most people, when they're going to buy something online, they're just looking at the price and how quickly it can be delivered. And when they take a look at Amazon, it kind of checks off a lot of the boxes. They've got competitive pricing. Uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you often get free delivery. Uh, the stuff you buy often shows up very quickly in a couple of days. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, Amazon uh, has, um, has built a system where uh, a lot of shoppers uh, are relying on Amazon to you know, to find things quickly and have them delivered quickly in the same way that a lot of small businesses are relying on Amazon uh, as a platform to reach customers in the same way that right. workers are reliant on Amazon for, you know, for a paycheck. We think that breakup, you know, it's a, it's a scary idea, right? You talk about, you know, breaking up a company, breaking up Amazon, you think, geez, you know, like what's, what's going to happen next? If you break up Amazon, what's, what does the day after breakup look like? Right. We think that breakup ultimately would be good for consumers, right? Um, because instead of having Amazon, uh, you know, dictate the terms of its marketplace, um, people would be finding the best products they can find on the merits of those products rather than um, 
uh, on the basis of which company is most willing to pay Amazon's taxes and tolls to get to the top of its you know, search results. Plus, you have all of Amazon's self-preferencing where it's pushing its own products. You got to remember, Amazon is, is, is the platform and it's a retailer. So it's pushing right. its own products out to customers, even if they're not the best products and even if they're not the best prices. Um, so, so this would give everyone a fair shot at winning a sale. It'd be better for small business, better for communities, um, uh, you know, and so on. I mean, I could go on. Breakup would mean that, the, 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 you know, customers have a choice um, in, you know, shipping and let Amazon shipping compete on even ground right. with, you, you know, UPS, FedEx and so on. Right. What do you think about the, uh, the union, the failed union drive? It appears here the union has failed to organize uh, that Amazon warehouse down in uh, Alabama. This was a lot of focus on this this week as workers in this Amazon warehouse voted on whether to join a union. And it appears, Ron, that the union lost here quite decisively, right? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a shame. Um, it's not totally unexpected, uh, but it's a shame for those workers in Bessemer, uh, Alabama, and it's a shame for workers around the country who were looking at this vote for a signal that unionizing uh, and collectivizing is possible in any workplace, right? No matter the company's political uh, and economic power. Now, this this particular vote is not over. Um, the union working with the Amazon employees there says Amazon illegally interfered with the union vote, and they've objected to the vote on those grounds. So uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, wasn't I mean, it wasn't it a secret it's a, ballot? It's a disappointment. Was it a secret ballot? It was a, it, sure it was a secret ballot, but what the union is saying is that um, uh, is it is that Amazon interfered with the vote uh, in you know multiple ways, uh, and w- you know what it exposed is a few things about Amazon. First, it confirms what I think most folks understand, and that's Amazon has grown very powerful. It's clearly willing to use that power to hurt you know, to hurt workers. It also shows just how brazen Amazon has become, right? Because it, you, you know, it's so used to operating above the law. It believes it is above the law. And its behavior during this union vote has given the world a clear, unfettered look into Amazon's complete disregard for any kind of democratic external governments. I I, I could give some examples of the various ways that Amazon, uh, um, you know, interfered. Well, let's let's fit in, um, let's fit in a... All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about Amazon, is it too big, too powerful? My guest, Ron Knox, Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Let's go to your phone calls and see what you think about it. Uh, Robert on the line in Kelowna. Hey, Robert. Hi. Uh, I'll just talk about, like, they want to unionize Amazon. Eh? I've been in the union for about 30 years. I worked in Toronto. And not all unions are unions, because I've seen some guys are in some unions there. They're getting just basically minimal wage. There's no benefits. And they were collecting dues from them. So I think if they ever uh, unionize Amazon, they better check to make sure that the union is one that's actually a reputable one. And that actually will give them not some guy that started up some union said now we're unionized. Okay, well, thanks. Well, the union that tried to organize at Amazon is the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, which, Ron, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's a pretty big major union, isn't isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. It is. It's a big union here in the States. Yeah, so my point about the secret ballot earlier was you were mentioning that, you know, Amazon has been accused of unfair tactics in this union drive, but at the end of the day, the workers go into a booth and they mark a ballot in secret. So, I mean, isn't that the ultimate test of whether workers want to join a union or not? They have a secret ballot and that most of them said no to the union. If it was a secret, I mean, yeah, look, if it was a secret ballot in a vacuum, sure. 
Um, you know, but it wasn't that right. You have months and months of um, you have months and months of, uh, you know, Amazon pressure, these forced meetings with employees, Amazon putting ballot collection boxes on its property after, uh, you know, the government essentially told them that they, you know, that they can't. So you have all these intimidation tactics, this, mm. you know, this poisons the vote and uh, uh, and it spoils what should have been uh, a fair and free union election. All right. OK. Mary calling from Vancouver Island. Hi, Mary. I've seldom used Amazon and don't plan to. Uh, how do you think that you get your packages so quickly? It's because of the workers in these warehouses who barely get a bathroom break, who are being injured and timed for uh, how long it takes them to get um, packages uh, off the shelves or whatever the heck they do. It's a terrible company, and um, yeah, it should okay. be broken up or whatever. Okay, Mary, thank you for the call. Well, I'm glad you talked about bathroom breaks. Ron, what about this story this week about, uh, was it Amazon truck drivers were being forced to urinate in bottles or something? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Amazon um, tried to deny it with a cute tweet uh, at a lawmaker here in the U.S. And then, of course, it was proven to be true, and Amazon had to apologize. But, yeah, look, this is it's indicative of Amazon's power in the market, the power it has. Um, you know, over workers. And um, look, it's allowed to treat, you know, these workers really terribly um, uh, oh. because it's expanding so quickly. It's offering, you know, it's offering these jobs uh, in, you know, in a bad economy, pandemic economy. And, um, and it's abusive. And, and, oh. you know, uh, it's part of why we feel that breakup is so crucial to any Amazon's power, because you can really only end these kinds of abuses um, if you, you know, if you break apart the company, you make it compete, you make it offer, you know, workers better protections, better wages, better working conditions. Um, that's, you know, that's the plan. Okay. Okay. Glenn and Maple Ridge. Hey, Glenn. Yeah. I, I like to say congratulations to, to Mary because she made some really good points. I, I, I'm, I'm a little biased because I'm a union man myself. And, uh, and I, and, uh, I, I believe that, that, I also know that companies also need to make money and unions sometimes can get to be big, too big and fat. I understand that fact, but yeah. we have less, we forget because we've got a lot of callers that call into CKNW. What did the, what have the unions brought in since the turn of the century? They brought in five day work weeks. They brought in safer workplaces. They brought in standards of work of pensions and, uh, and, uh, and not just pensions, but I mean, just general upbeat of, uh, of, of increased wages and standards right. of living. And I under Amazon, I under yeah. Amazon, Amazon is all about their profits. And from what I understand, and, uh, we have a big Amazon warehouse place right out in Delta there. Yeah. And yeah, the, the working conditions there are go, 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 go. Yeah, your your pee breaks must be like thirty seconds, or you know, like you're you're gonna get you're gonna get tromped on. And Thanks, Glenn. Okay, Glenn, I got to jump in there. Speaking of taking a break, um, we got to take one now. But I do appreciate your call. Uh, and Ron, we're out of time. Uh, boy, it's an interesting topic. We got more calls. Uh, we'll just have to have you back on. But uh, thanks a lot for coming on today. That sounds great, Mike. Thanks so much. Okay, yes, indeed, it is Superman, and up, up, and away, indeed. Let's talk now about the highest price 
ever paid now for a comic book. The record has just been set for Action Comics number one. This is probably the most iconic comic book out there. Of course, it is the first appearance of Superman and a beautiful copy of this comic book just sold for a record high price. And I'm just nerding out, geeking out on this as a, I like comic books myself. I got a modest collection of comic books at home, but man, oh man, Action Comics number one, record price let's check in with matt nelson now he is a vintage comic book expert and appraiser with certified guarantee company that's the leading comic book grading service matt thanks a lot for coming on well sure no problem michael thanks for having me on pleasure okay matt lay it on me how much did this comic book sell for uh, i think it was 3.25 million dollars Yes, you are correct. It is three point two five million bucks, and of course that's U.S. So I just I just did a quick calculation. That's over four million dollars Canadian, which is just extraordinary. So Matt, tell me about this comic book because I know you've seen this book. You've seen this book over the years. This is a famous book, right? This particular book. It, it is. It is. Yeah. There's a handful of high grade action ones out there. They're all famous. They all have a great story to them. This particular one is really interesting. It's, it came to sur- it surfaced in the uh, 90s, the early 90s. It walked into a comic show inside a Life magazine. Someone had brought it in, and I guess they'd been sitting on it for a long time. And, of course, you know, as soon as they brought it in, all the dealers just lost their minds, seeing how you know, not only was it an action one, but it was a beautiful copy. And, uh, and so it, uh, it sold back in the early 90s. And then uh, certif- uh, CGC, my company, we opened in 2000, and it was one of the uh, first comics that we graded in 2000. Obviously gave it an 8.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. And uh, since then, I think the book has changed hands three times. This is the third time. And each time, obviously, it's sold for more and more money. Yeah. How much did it sell for back in the 90s? Uh, It sold for, I believe, $135,000. I think it was in uh, 1993. Oh my God! So 135,000 and now 3.25 million US. That's that's extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this particular comic because this is maybe this has probably got to be the most the most single uh, most iconic comic because it's not only the first appearance of Superman but it's kind of the first superhero comic period, isn't it? Right. Yes. It came out in 1938. Uh, comics had just started in 1933. It was a new medium. Uh, that was created uh, in the midst of uh, pulps and big little books and radio shows and movies and all these things. And they all contributed to uh, the creation of the comic book. But the comics really didn't have uh, their own identity, so to speak, until Superman came along in 1938 with this issue. And it was the, the beginning of the, of the superheroes or the creation of the modern mythology. And so it's iconic and, and historical for that reason because that was what kicked off all the superheroes that followed, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and then, of course, in the 60s, you know, Stan Lee's books, the Fantastic Four, X-Men, Spider-Man, Avengers. So nothing, we all owe everything, all of our careers and all these great comics to that one book. Yeah, for sure. Action Comics number one. That's extraordinary. Who bought this comic? Do we know? Is the, is the buyer public? No, I believe it is a private, it's a private sale, which is usually the case. Um, most yeah. of the time when these books uh, change hands privately or at auction, the buyer is anonymous unless they choose to make themselves known. But I think in this case, it's, it's a uh, private buyer. Okay, so Matt, you are an expert comic book 
grader and appraiser. This is what you do for a living, which I think is an extremely cool job. So when you're talking about this particular book, you mentioned that it was rated 8.5 by your company there, CGC. Can you just briefly explain to the listeners what that means? Like what the condition of this comic is what makes it so valuable, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 10 point, there's only a few grades above 8.5. It goes up to 10. So above that would be 90, 92, 94, 96, 98, uh, 99, and 10. But for a comic book from this era, uh, you know, 8.5 is an extraordinary grade. You know, in fact, there's only, uh, there's two other action ones that grade 90 out there. Wow. And so far to date, that's the highest grades we've ever assigned. Most copies, there's only about 100 in existence. We've graded about 60, 65 or so. And uh, they are, they range, most of them are in low grade or they're restored. So, you know, there's very few that are actually up in this, this end of the scale. Um, and I, you know, it's, there's probably not going to be much out there. <laughs> I think at this point they've all been discovered, or most of them. So, and most of the ones that turn up these days are low grade. So this is, this yeah. is one, easily one of the best existing copies. Yeah, just an extraordinary book. That's really cool. And it's, it's really cool that you were able to see this book a few times over the years and, you mentioned that it surfaced, or I guess it was kind of discovered in the 90s when someone came into a comic book show and it was tucked inside of a magazine, did you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wasn't there. I heard this, uh, yeah, I heard this at the grapevine as, you know, the, over the years. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was brought in. And there's so many different you know, strange ways that comics like this turn up. There was a, a copy of Action 1 that turned up about seven or eight years ago. That was found on the wall of a house. Someone had stuffed it in the house, in the walls, yeah, for insulation, and they were ripping the walls out and found it. And it was low grade, but it sold for a couple hundred thousand dollars anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, they they turn up in trunks and you know boxes and attics and basements and all kind of strange things. So this right. one luckily was flat and tucked and uh, tucked in safely inside a magazine apparently for for decades. Right. And did, did the person who owned the comic at that time did they know that this valuable comic was was tucked inside this magazine or was it was I mean did he just sort of stumble across it and find it there? Yeah, you know, I don't know the the whole story on that. It'd be a great yeah. story for someone to write about. Um yeah. but yeah, they 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 probably found, you know, usually what happens is they find it uh it's such an iconic book even back in the 90s that most people, you know, they recognize there's some value, but oh, yeah. usually they get online, well, or they, they, they start doing research, and then they find out that this book's worth a lot more than they thought. And then, of course, you know, there's usually a feeding frenzy that, that occurs once it, it reaches the comic industry. And, uh, yeah, and it fetches huge money. Hey, so, Matt, what's it like for you as a guy who's like a comic book expert? You're one of the world-class appraisers of comic books, and you've seen this particular famous book over the years. Like, when you're holding a book like that in your hands, it's worth, like, millions and millions of dollars. Like, what, what, is, what is that like for you as a comic book guy? Well, it's, a, it's an incredible feeling, you know, I mean, to, to see, you know, because I've seen so many action ones over the years. I've seen, you know, probably half of them. And it's the condition, you know, because, I mean, we, I always get a thrill seeing an action one, but on top of that, to see one in this condition with the white pages and the full gloss uh, and the, the, the deep inks, the colors, uh, you know, it's just something to behold. And it, it just, it's a showstopper, you know, it comes in the green room and everybody stops what they're doing to come take a look. I bet. Yeah, that must be cool. Um, what do you think about the value of this book, like going for $3.25 million and and you know, just soaring in value like that. Like, do you think that these super rare high-end comic books are, li- are they like a good investment? 
Oh, they're great investment. In fact, I think this is going to be a, uh, this is, this is actually going to be a, a good deal in a couple of years. Uh, I mean, wow. the book just sold, this copy just sold a couple of years ago for two point, uh, 2.2, I believe, 2.25 million. So wow. it's, it's that, and when did it, when did it sell? Million. When did it sell for 2.2 million? I, I think t- 2018. Gee uh, whiz. And it's, so it's gone yeah. up more than a million bucks since then. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, two things are going on. One, um, obviously, comics are, are booming because of the movies and all the, the interest in the media. And, uh, you know, it's, we're at the zeitgeist in terms of the, the culture of comics and how they've, they've merged in with, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, this, and everybody's reading them. Everybody's going to the shows, watching the movies. And so, you know, there, there's young people that are being introduced to comics now. And that's what's going to perpetuate the hobby and the interest going for decades ahead. So, you know, we're seeing a tremendous growth in that regard. And the second okay. thing is, is that with uh, COVID, uh, I mm. think directly or indirectly, it has recently caused a huge surge in interest in uh, the collectibles markets, not just comics, but baseball cards, coins, everything, you know, tangibles. And so there's been tremendous growth just in the past year uh, in sales. And I don't, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. So I think with, okay. with those two factors, it's, you know, future's bright for comics. Matt, it was awesome to have you on today. Thanks a lot for coming on. Well, no problem, Michael. Thanks for having me on.